Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 2. Stepping on Toes. The 24 keymen, ALPA's founders, were called troublemakers. After all, who did they think they were, butting in where they had no business, presuming to form an association? Airline owners weren't fooled by the fancy name and the talk about ALPA being like the American Medical Association. They knew the shape and the smell of a union, and they were having none of it in 1931. When United Airlines President Pat Patterson first heard of ALPA, he said that he would not have any union man working for him. Nobody can belong to a union and fly for United. It was no idle threat. Byron Warner got the axe for ALPA activities on the National Air Transport Division of United just after the convention of the Keymen. That meeting, held at the Morrison Hotel in Chicago on July 27, 1931, was ALPA's official moment of birth. Reuben Wagner, who was in charge of organizing the Omaha-based pilots of Boeing Air Transport, was one of the several very nervous young men who had made that meeting possible. So why did they risk their careers by listening to Dave Banke? We were just worn out, Wagner said, noting the rapid growth of airline flying as the Great Depression deepened. We all wanted to fly. We liked to fly. Everyone in those days was flying because they liked to fly, not for the money. But we thought we weren't getting what we should. The men who helped Dave Banke create ALPA never thought of themselves as troublemakers. They were, in fact, good company men, loyal and conscientious, with more of a stake in the survival of the airlines for which they worked than the owners themselves had. As Reuben Wagner put it, we pilots were the company. Some pilots who didn't want to join ALPA tried to make believe that if the pilots were for a union, they weren't for the company. But ALPA pilots were for the company, way ahead of the company. The first generation of airline pilots, the ones who managed to live through the 1920s against all odds, saw the future only dimly. Indeed, the nature of their work precluded long-term planning. Some of them, however, had the idea that air transportation would one day become something more than a curiosity, perhaps even the dominant mode of passenger travel. And they had an inkling that those who flew the airliners of the future would occupy a critical position in the industry. This foresight was remarkable considering management's arrogance in those days. The absolute belief of most early airline operators that they were the industry and that pilots were a dime a dozen technicians doing a job anybody could do. The airline operators were just a bit premature in this judgment. In a few years, airline flying would become a rather ordinary exercise still requiring considerable technical skill, but sufficiently routine that almost any young pilot coming out of the military flight schools could, with proper training, undertake it. The operators failed to recognize that the piloting skills necessary for successful scheduled airline operations in the late 1920s were anything but ordinary. 
An airline's success was heavily dependent upon the expertise of pilots who knew intimately the landmarks along their routes, who knew every fence, every mountain pass, every bend and kink in every river and lake between lighted beacons. They flew over these lighted airways in weather conditions that today's modern pilots wouldn't touch. Conditions sometimes measured in terms of how many telephone poles were visible from a railroad telegrapher's office. There are cases on record in which pilots only narrowly averted head-on collisions with onrushing locomotives. These pilots had learned these extraordinary flying skills in open cockpit biplanes flown in every conceivable weather condition, often as government airmail pilots. When the first multi-engine transports became available, the skills early pilots had honed under circumstances that absolutely prohibited carrying passengers were easily translatable into regular passenger operations. The ability of these old barnstormers to get a Fokker or Ford tri-motor on schedule bred a false confidence among their employers, a feeling that there was really nothing much to flying an airliner in 1929. The go-getter businessmen who began taking over aviation in the late 1920s were largely ignorant of flying skills. Many of them were opportunists who had come into the business following Lindbergh's celebrated flight to Paris in 1927, their primary goal being to harness the torrent of money unleashed by that watershed event. Wall Streeters called it the Lindbergh boom. There was big money available in the freewheeling atmosphere of 1927 for anybody who could put together a stock prospectus with the magic word arrow somewhere in it. The movers and shakers in this scene were usually young men who hoped to make their mark exploiting the commercial possibilities of aviation as the previous generation of entrepreneurs had exploited steamships and rails. They had no real love for aviation otherwise. Take, for example, Harris Hanshu, the operator of Western Air Express, who hated airplanes and never flew, even as a passenger, unless he had no other choice. United's Pat Patterson was a banker who never so much as touched the controls of an airplane. Delta C.E. Woolman briefly played around with airplanes as a young man, but he was essentially a promoter who stumbled into airline operations via his accidental control of a crop dusting outfit. Even some legendary aviation personalities like Eastern's Eddie Rickenbacker had only public relations flying experience. Although he carried a great reputation from his combat days in World War I, Rickenbacker's total pilot time did not exceed 200 hours, and he never held a civil license. Juan Tripp of Pan American flew the same way the notorious E.L. Cord of Century Airlines flew. Only when the weather was perfect, and only with an experienced professional pilot along. Cord had a pivotal role in the pilot's growing support for ALPA because nobody better exemplified the contempt for pilots that most operators hardly bothered to conceal. Cord had risen rapidly into the rarefied heights of 1920s-style finance capitalism, dealing mostly with automotive stocks. In 1929, he acquired his first aircraft operation, the struggling Stinson Aircraft Corporation. And shortly after that, he added the engine manufacturer Lycoming to his portfolio. Already equipped with engines and airframes, all cord needed for an airline were pilots, which he proceeded to hire as the depression deepened at wages of $150 per month. 
Cord had no trouble staffing Century Airlines at that price. Any normal person can handle an airplane, Cord said in 1930. Virtually, the only genuine airman along airline executives was Jack Fry of Transcontinental and Western Air, known as TWA. Capitalizing on this unique fact, TWA used to advertise itself as the airline run by airmen. All the other airline owner-operators were pilots in the sense that George Baker of National and Paul Braniff were pilots, fair-weather amateurs. The hard fact is, by the late 1920s, a clear clash of values had set in between pilots and management, one that almost amounted to class conflict. When all the romantic myths are punctured, the typical airline owner-operator of that era can be seen as possessing some very unlovely characteristics. He was less interested in pioneering than he was in his bank account, less interested in the welfare of his employees than he was in his stockholders' dividends, and less concerned with the safety of flight than he was with its profitability. To the pioneer airline pilots of the 1920s, men who had flown the airmail for the post office, who knew the ins and outs of making a buck with an airplane through barnstorming, it was profoundly disillusioning to discover the true nature of their employers. After the disillusionment wore off, the pilots were just plain mad. It was pilots, real airmen, who had brought aviation into prominence by the late 1920s, not bankers and Wall Street wheeler dealers with their fancy connections and silk suits. To pioneer pilots, Flying airplanes was a way of life, something they did because they loved it. To be in an open cockpit, to smell the seductive odor of doped wings and oiled machinery, to cast free from earthly restraint with a water-cooled Liberty's 12 drumming cylinders up front and a challenging DH-4 beneath them, that was what aviation was all about. It didn't matter that they could have earned far more money on the ground selling insurance, Airplanes mattered, more than life, certainly more than mere money. That didn't mean, though, that early airline pilots were going to work for peanuts. It was obvious that the men who signed their paychecks had plenty of money. Aviation was a gusher that returned unimaginable profits, at least percentage-wise, on the amount invested. Northwest pilots got a flat salary of $350 per month, for five trips a week between Chicago and the Twin Cities, with neither hourly limitations nor regular vacations. Following their first meeting with Northwest's owner, a Minneapolis banker named Richard Lilly, Northwest pilots knew something had to be done. That meeting was the main reason that Northwest pilots were interested in forming a union. Lilly would say he was rich, didn't need the airline, that it was just a plaything to him. Of course, that sentiment did not sit well with his pilots. So, were Northwest pilots intimidated by Lilly's threats to disband the airline and fire them if he had any labor trouble? No. It actually made the pilots more determined and unafraid. By 1928, it was a pretty big business, and it was making 25% per year on the original investment at a time when the only revenue was mostly mail service. Still, 
Only through repeated pressure could the pilot groups get any pay raises. At Northwest, following the introduction of Ford Tri-Motors in 1928, Lilly agreed to a small raise. When ALPA was fully organized, Lilly threatened dire results to anybody who joined. But that never materialized. Pilots got $775 a month for flying Fords. Reuben Wagner agreed about the combination of political and public relations pressures that Binky brought to bear. After the convention of the Keymen at the Morrison, Wagner figured his job was gone. Then President Roosevelt was elected, and suddenly, United's Patterson was all for the unions, saying that if he were a pilot, the first thing he would do would be join ALPA. Labor relations at United instantly changed. Earning a decent salary was one thing. Living to spend it was another. While the pilots were fighting for ALPA's right to exist, a new battle loomed. It was about safety, and the pilots had a word for it. They called it pushing. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 2 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2019. All rights reserved.